a very bright shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future, moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future. New documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply. One, two, three, four. Good morning and welcome into the 24-7 Sports Football Recruiting Podcast on National Recruiting Analyst Cooper Patagno alongside 24-7 Sports Director of Scouting. And we are joined today by 24-7 Sports College Football Analyst Carl Reed and a guy who knows a thing or two about football in the state of Missouri, and that is the topic today. Five-star Williams Winery off the board to Missouri. Yesterday, Missouri jumps from number 60 in the country to number 55. They only have 12 commits, which is a, a little bit behind the rest of the country in the pace right now. But, Carl, like I said, you've spent the majority of your career coaching high school football in St. Louis. Williams Winery mm-hmm. is a guy that had Georgia, Oregon, Tennessee – and in this new college football world, it's Missouri that gets this one done. He is the second highest ranked prospect in the program's history. What does this mean for Eli Drinkwitz going forward? And do we expect this for Missouri going forward in the new age of NIL and keeping guys home? Well, this is the second time in as many years Eli's got the number one guy at the state that could have went anywhere nationally. And so I think he definitely has it trending in the right direction. And he has mastered in his state the the recruiting landscape now with NIL being a major factor and he's pulling in recruits that did not even consider Missouri five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. You just have a long history of Missouri striking out on one big time recruit after another. So we have definitely have to give Drink some respect because he has been able to close a couple of these deals and he's in the mix now for guys that Missouri has never been in the mix for before. Carl, you're a guy that used to coach right there in Missouri. And obviously you have a ton of contacts through the state and and the country. Um, Just having, you know, talked with those individuals, what has kind of like been the reaction um, from the local community when it comes to these, what I would call progressive NIL rules? I mean, we've mentioned them uh, in the reaction podcast to uh, the the big commitment, but in Missouri, I mean, uh, as soon as you sign a financial aid agreement with an in-state school, you can start receiving some of that NIL. So Missouri's kind of at the forefront. We'll see if some of these other schools fall or excuse me, states follow suit, but just what is the pulse on the ground and, and from what you've heard? Everybody in the state is really excited, especially from a fan standpoint. One of the politicians who pushed, um, that bill through the state of Missouri is a former Mizzou football team captain. And most people think he'll be the governor of the state one day. So right now he may be the most popular guy in the state for him being able to get this bill passed that gives an advantage. In recruiting, we always talk about what programs have advantages. Some of them, some programs are in places that are hotbeds for recruiting. Some guys have boosters that give their kids a lot of amenities. This rule is an advantage for Missouri when it comes to recruiting in-state kids. And so I think that they're taking advantage of it. I think they're smart for taking advantage of it. In this new age of recruiting with transfer portal and NIL, you better get in where you fit in. And right now, Missouri does have an advantage when it comes to in-state recruiting. This puts a little bit of a microscope on Eli Drinkwitz, Missouri, a little bit. I mean, we're talking about one of the best players in the country. Andrew and I talked about it yesterday. I mean, there was a lot of back and forth on us behind the, behind the scenes thinking Williams Winery has a legitimate chance to potentially end up as the number one player in the country, and that could still shake out here over the next couple of months. From Missouri, they're in it with Ryan Wingo as well, another top 10 prospect in the country. Hypothetically, let's say they pull that, pull that one off. Is, do we see Missouri as a program that is only going to be selective spenders for guys like Williams Winery and Ryan Wingo? Because – To me, what type of ripple effect does this cause for a program like Missouri that might not have the financial backing as some of these other programs and institutions based on where they are geographically that says, hey, we've seen Williams Winery get the bag. We've seen Ryan Wingo get the bag. 
What about the next guy? What about the guy that's not ranked in the top 247 but is still a priority for Missouri going forward? How does that impact those local kids, St. Louis, Missouri, and the state as a whole? I think that's always a tough question when you're dealing with recruiting because that that is the other side of it. You guys know this, and I'm sure you've seen this at other schools. Some guys get upset when they don't get the money that they think another guy is getting. It does cause issues in the locker room at times. It does cause issues in recruiting because guys want those offers. But you just said it, though, Cooper. You're talking about a guy who is in the running to be the number one player in the country. So it ain't nobody better than the number one player in the country. So surely if you're outside of that top 100, but you are a priority, you shouldn't expect to get the same money that the number one guy in the country has. Also, the state of Missouri, they have a bunch of businessmen and bunch of businesses who are committed to providing NIL marketing opportunities for those guys. And it's a, it's really an in-state thing. So if you're an in-state guy and you're one of the best players in the country, um, it is it can be profitable for you in recruiting. Carl, I got kind of two follow-up questions. I think they're a little related. I mean, again, you're a guy that coached in St. Louis in, in that metro. Um, so, so number one, having been there for a, a while, have you seen – an uptick in talent recently, and then and then the follow up to that. I mean, and and I'm I guess I'm thinking a little outside the box here, but unless other states follow suit, it seems like everyone or or some of these elite players could end up flocking to Missouri just for those NIL opportunities. So, have you heard of anyone? You know, maybe it's in like the youth leagues jumping over the state border or anything like that just yet. Well, to your first question about an uptick in talent, no, I haven't seen the uptick. St. Louis has always had great players in, in, in the city. Um, Missouri has always had great players in the state, going back as far as guys like in the class of 97 and 96. Reggie Germany was the number one receiver in the country and went to Ohio State over Kenyon Rambo, going back that far. It's Jeremy Macklin was a guy who was one of the top players in the country, a first-round draft pick, Sheldon Richardson. It's been a ton of guys. I think, obviously, social media and the attention to recruiting rankings now, it, it puts a bigger light on it, but there's always been a plethora of talent within the city. In terms of the NIL rules, I think what makes everything different is we don't have a uniform rule. Each state is going from one place to another. I think what makes it hard in terms of if you're going to move into the state of Missouri so you can capitalize on the NIL market, you have to understand that rule only applies if you're going to go to an in-state college, right? So if you're not, if you don't plan on playing at the University of Missouri, it wouldn't be beneficial for you to move into the state to receive NIL money because that would null and void your situation. So it could be an advantage if you were a guy who lived outside the state and you planned on coming to Missouri and if, if you were in Texas or Georgia, or one of the other areas they like to go grab a kid in and you wanted to move in state. But you also I, I tell this to guys all the time. I talk to players and their families a lot when they're talking about transferring schools and moving across state. These high school state associations are a little more stringent on transferring than even the NCAA is. So you have to be really careful when you move, where you move, how you move, and what reason you're given that you're moving for before you jump. If they're snuffing out that you're coming into the state strictly for NIL purposes, you could cause yourself a problem. Carl, what does this mean for, for Eli Drinkwitz? You know, to me, I, I take a step back and I look at it, and I'm looking at Eli Drinkwitz, 17 and 19 in three years at Missouri, right, in the SEC East. How does Missouri take that next step? They're 0-2 in the last two bowl games. If I had to imagine what the conversations look like with the power brokers at Missouri, it's you got to give me a chance, right? At the end of the day, I got to have the horses to run the race. Now he's got Williams Winery, right? They're in the thick of it for Ryan Wingo. To me, this is when the tables turn a little bit, all right? Listen, we've invested in you. Now you got to go win games. I mean, what, what's the feel on Eli Drinkwitz in Missouri right now? Well, he was going to have to win whether he got Williams and Mary or not. It's, the, it's SEC football. You know, so it always is going to come down to winning. He won the recruiting battle with Luther Burden. He won it with Williams. Appears to be in the driver's seat right now with Ryan Wingo. So it's exciting times, but that does have to transfer to winning on the field. And right now what they need to win on the field, they have a great defense. 
and they have a great defensive coordinator on that side. He removed himself as the play call and brought in Kirby Moore from Fresno State, which was a, a good move on the chessboard for him. Brought in a great offensive line coach, Brandon Jacobs from Houston, so they made a change there. And so now the, what they need more than anything this year is very consistent play from the quarterback position. Brady Cook was up and down a year ago. You bought in Garcia from Miami. You have Sam Horn, who's a young guy who has showed a lot of promise. And so you got a quarterback battle going on right now. That's the position that they need to step up right now at the University of Missouri. And their season will go as far as that quarterback goes in terms of him being able to complete passes down the field. You have a good solid receiving core with Luther Burden, uh, Theo Weiss coming in from the University of Oklahoma. So I, I think that Missouri has a chance to have a really good football season this year but they need the quarterback position to play extremely well. Just to follow up on that real quick, what is the ceiling of the University of Missouri program in your eyes? And then how do they get there from a recruiting perspective? Well, I think that uh, if I look on the schedule this year, they have nine possible games that they can win this year. So if they went nine and three and won a bowl game and, and they got the 10 wins, then Eli Drinkwitz, they may build a statue of them, but they can consistently be an eight-win program. And if, they, if Missouri is consistently an eight-win program, most people in the state would be happy with their football coach. They don't expect them to be Georgia, right? But they don't want to be Vanderbilt either. Call Reed, everybody. Georgia. Yeah, they almost got Georgia last year. Hey, it, 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 was, it was close. And, and here's the thing when you talk about quarterback play. If you make one throw, if you complete one of those key throws, then we have a completely different situation in the SEC last year. Drew, you got anything else for Carl? That's all I got. I want him to call his shot. Brady Cook going to be the guy or what? I think Brady Cook start has the see uh, starts the season as the starting quarterback. He's the incumbent, um, and so far he's been holding those guys in camp. Nobody, but he has to start strong. If he has if he has any rough outing at the beginning of the season, you will see one of the other guys. Carl Reed Jr. You can follow him on Twitter at Coach Reed Live, one of the best in the business, college football analyst here at Twenty Four Seven Sports. Keep it locked here to the 24-7 Sports Football Recruiting Podcast. Andrew and I are going to break down our instant reaction from the College Football Player Personnel Symposium that took place in Nashville over the weekend. Make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts as well, Spotify and Apple. For Carl Reed, I'm Cooper Patagna, Andrew Ivins as well. Keep it locked here. Appreciate Carl Reed being on the broadcast today of the 24-7 Sports Football Recruiting Podcast. Now, Drew and I, this weekend in Nashville with over 500 of our closest friends attended the player personnel symposium in college football over 100 programs 109 programs in attendance this weekend in nashville multiple panels throughout the weekend led by our friend josh pate discussing everything from evaluation to on-campus recruiting new rules and regulations in the ncaa this event that's been going on i want to say since 2017 they do a great job it has grown tremendously and if you don't know anything about the afca the coaches convention that happens every year they typically move around locations but player personnel symposium in a lot of ways kind of mirrors that so every year it becomes somewhat of a networking event not a bad place to have it in nashville but drew you've been going the last two years and you know we've gotten more and more exposure to guys and 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 ladies as well that we really really respect in the industry that do this at a high level. So we'll get into takeaways really. And I, you know, I, you share with me your notes this morning is, is there one thing above everything else that you kind of came away with and said, wow, that's pretty interesting. Maybe I didn't see it that way, or this is something that I'm going to apply for my personal use going forward. Man. Well, I left Nashville with a full, notebooks so i got a, a lot of different things i, I don't know I, um can we start with the obvious one uh still a big man's game um jim nagy director of scouting for the senior bowl i think he said it on one of the first panels and then that was reiterated when cooper you were moderating a bunch of college football regulars um the general managers and director of player personnel for them. I mean, at the end of the day, it is a height, weight, speed game, um, which is pretty obvious. But just to kind of get that 
thrown in your face over the course of of three days um i, I don't know I, I left nashville like thinking that maybe it's because we're coming out with our class of 2026 rankings and and all that and you know you're trying to project it's football's a developmental game so that was one thing i mean what about you cooper because i mean we've talked already at, at length about this stuff so what jumped out to you yeah, just to add on what you said real quick, it was funny that panel was on Sunday and it was like the skeleton crew. It felt like everybody, like two thirds of, of the audience that was there the prior two days had already left. And like I said, you're in Nashville. I think it, the majority of the crowd was probably banged up a little bit on their second or third cup of coffee by, by 10 a.m. But, um, you know, we had the discussion about the big bodies and we started with Will Myers, the director of player personnel at Georgia, a good friend of mine. And I asked him, I said, you're, you're in rarefied air at the University of Georgia. How do you separate just big bodies? How, how, do, how do you go from some of the best players in the country to, you know, a few years ago, you're at St. John Bosco in California for Ernest Green. You go up to New York for, for Marcus Harrison this year. I think they have five or six guys committed on the offensive line. The, the smallest one is Malachi Tolliver that we alluded to on the show a week or two ago at like 6'5 and change and, and 320 plus pounds. And his answer was really dry. And it was, you know, there was some humor in that as well, but it was just size, you know, and obviously additional context as well, getting these guys on campus. So when you say size reigns supreme, it's interesting because even when you think about Georgia, you know, the other question that I asked, I'm not even really sure if it got answered. It was like, these are all tackle bodies. It's almost like, let's just take, let's, let's take these group of guys that we know fit us. And we'll figure out the positions later, right? That's really not that important. Let's take the guys that fit us, fit our program, and play a physical style of football and that are going to lead the way for a really strong running back group, protect the guys of Dylan Rayola in the future, and they can play complementary football and, and rely on their defense. So it seems like such obvious. I think people, they, they, they say, oh, yeah, absolutely. But I, I've talked in the past. You have to have such a relentlessness to that philosophy to actually bring it to life on your roster. And I think we've seen that more and more in college football. I don't know how you feel about that, but I, I feel even though it's painfully obvious, teams can sometimes get distracted and maybe get a little bit carried away. The Georgias of the world, I mean, like they will not dissent from that. That's that's who they are. And they'll succeed and they'll fail with it and they'll live with it at the end of the day. So um, just to add a little context to what you're saying, I, I, I think the biggest thing is, is, you know, we talked about this. Another panel I was on on Saturday was talking about business of football, which was a super generic and vague topic. But it was more about, hey, what's not life after football, but there is college football from head coaches to coordinators to position coaches all the way down to the equipment room is dealing with burnout. It's the worst kept secret in all of college football. Nobody wants to talk about it. So I, I give the people at the college football playoff or, or personnel symposium a lot of credit for even talking about this because I think there's a little bit of a a little bit of a hesitation that you're going to scare the next generation away. And I was one of the people on the panel that really kind of talked about my own experience, but, and, and you have to see it through your own eyes. Everybody's own experience is going to be a little bit different. But the point that I brought up is, you know, people aren't walking away from this game because their inability to work long, tough hours. There's one way of looking at it, which is like the old guard, archaic way of saying, well, you got to be in a submarine and you got to earn your stripes. I completely agree. You got to do what you got to do up until a certain point. But I also think that there's a lack of investment across the board in college football outside of a handful of programs financially in these support staffs. And it starts with the recruiting departments. It starts in player personnel. It starts in on campus and it starts in creative. And the last person to typically realize that is the head coach. And they say, you know what, if they don't want to do it, I'll find somebody else to do it. It's almost like you should be happy to be here. But to everybody else, every other coach that says, hey, you know what, I, I got to look at another opportunity. Well, 
it's not it's not seen through the same lens. I feel like younger people, which makes up the majority of the support staff around the country in college football, they're they're starting to they're starting to feel this, and they're starting to say, "How much bandwidth do I actually have? Can I do this till I'm thirty? Can I do it till I'm thirty-five? And it's so much dependent on your situation, who you're working for. And I think the biggest thing is if you're working in college football, you better have somebody that you respect that has the same morals, values, and principles when it comes not only to college football, but life outside of football. And I think there's two ways of looking at it. Football is everything, and football is not everything. You're on either one side of the fence or the other. And I absolutely resent the fact that there are people in this business that put the sport on a pedestal that says, this is the only way. And in fact, that's not true. That's just the inability to adjust and find a way to be more efficient. So that's my biggest thing. I went on a soapbox about it because I'm passionate about it. You know, I work in media, but nothing will ever fill the void of working for a team. And there's positives and negatives about every job, whether you're on that side of the industry or not. It's just frustrating. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way at all. I got I, I to gotta sacrifice being a good husband, being a good father, being a good son, being a good teammate, being a good leader. Because this is the way I got to think all the time. I refuse that. So to me, that's the biggest thing. College football has got to get worked out. That has nothing to do with the college football recruiting calendar. Yeah, is it long? Is it hard? For sure. You got to do what you got to do. It's got everything to do with the head coach. So you better make sure your head coach is a good human being too that gets it a little bit, just a little bit. It's a hard business. You got to work hard. I get it. You got to do what you got to do. But it, you know, have a have a little sense to you. So kind of that was my big my my <laughs> biggest takeaway. Well, kind of along those lines, Cooper. Um, I mean, how many times was how uh, what Texas Tech has set up in terms of their scouting and personnel department, and how Joey McGuire allows those individuals to identify who the Red Raiders are going to recruit and who they're going to offer. It's not the position coaches; it's the guys in the recruiting office, in the scouting office. I mean, how many times was that brought up over the course of the two, three days? I mean, it seems like everyone who, – who, who was it Mark Pantone that said, hey, print out a few articles and and leave it on leave it on your coach's desk or leave it on the printer just showing what Texas Tech and, and Joey McGuire are doing? I think that's kind of the, the Petri dish, right? Everyone wants to see how that is going to pan out in terms of that operation, that setup. It is very – NFL-like in terms of the coaches have to trust. Everyone's got to be bought in. And I think just listening to a few different individuals, you know, that are at Texas Tech, it seems like it took a while, but but now everyone is fully invested in that terms of how it's structured, how the board comes together, how they choose who they recruit. I thought that was certainly a, a talking point. So let's pull the curtain back for the listeners here a little bit. There's almost like a little bit of a jealousy that exists within the <laughs> player personnel world when it comes to Texas Tech in a, in a good way. Maybe not jealousy, more of an envy, right? And a curiosity. Texas Tech, from what we understand, and I've had conversations with a lot of people very close to the program. We've had conversations with James Blanchard, our friend Cody Belair, who works at On3, he used to work at Texas Tech for Joey McGuire. Joey McGuire has empowered his player personnel staff to drive the ship when it comes to the talent identification and evaluation process. And I think if you talk to any director or player personnel around the country, all they want is the opportunity not to make decisions, but to have a voice at the table that is heard and respected. And in a lot of ways, what Joey McGuire has done is saying, listen, a head coach and, and his two coordinators and 11 assistants, they have a lot of responsibilities throughout the course of the year. If we can entrust our player personnel department 
to drive this process. That makes everybody better. And Texas Tech has done that. And I also love the way that Texas Tech has also said, you know what? We're not going to beat Texas. We're not going to beat Oklahoma for the recruit. We have to be somewhat of card counters. But you know what we do have in our advantage is we're in one of the most potent states in the country when it comes to talent. Matt Rule did this at Baylor. He's doing it now at Nebraska as well. These guys have figured it out. And people, the question might be, what have they figured out? They figured out the way to miss smart. They've raised the floor of their program in their roster because they're asking the right questions. If we're going to miss at Texas Tech, let's miss with height, weight, speed. And I'm sure people who listen to the show are like probably just so numb to this. <laughs> But it's the same thing I was talking about Georgia at the offensive line. Your hit rate's going to be higher. One of these guys is going to work out. Sure, you got to have football instincts. You got to check other boxes as well. But in terms of being a player development program, give yourself the best chance to succeed. Bet on the player, get them in the program, develop them not only from a strength, conditioning, nutrition standpoint, but a player development and coaching standpoint as well. Texas Tech has done that. There's a handful of other programs that I think that are slowly catching on. Matt Rule is doing that at Nebraska. He did the same thing at Baylor. And James Blanchard, right, from Texas Tech, he provided my favorite quote of the weekend when he was talking about just assembling and and figuring out who they are going to pursue on the recruiting trail. It was and I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, so I apologize if I got it wrong, but this is what I wrote down. We are going to give consideration to the people with the most information. I might get that tattooed on me, Cooper. Yeah, my response to that is like immediately the Michael Scott gif of, you know, like him. He, he's like so surprised. He pops out over there and it's like, oh, look at that. That's I mean, that's it at the end of the day, right? Like people are like, hey, what's the deal? What's the, he what's the hesitation? And it's like, well, at the end of the day, we, we're, these prospects are as good as the information we have available. And that's it. And, and these player personnel departments, sometimes they're not afforded the same opportunities that we're not afforded. Maybe they couldn't get out in the fall and go see this guy. Right. Maybe the only thing they have is a height and weight from huddle, which the discrepancy is probably an inch and a half to two inches and 15 to 20 pounds. So which guy are you going to lean towards? Right. Well, and, and apply that to our rankings process, right? We only have, I always say it, we only have 300 bullets in terms of four-star prospects, give or take, 300 a cycle. And my, my favorite question you'll get is, how is this guy the 59th wide receiver in the country? Well, let me tell you about the guys ahead of him who we know more <laughs> about who run a verified 4-5, who are younger for their grade, who are a two-sport athlete that – is running the open floor and dunking. At the end of the day, who are you going to bet on? Right? The tape's not that different. Who are you going to invest? Who are you going to take your chance on? The other thing, Drew, I thought was interesting. Jim Nagy brought this up that I think college football is so way behind on. You got a couple programs who have maybe their own recipe for how they evaluate this. I think college football is way behind on the evaluation process when it comes to cognitive ability yep the nfl has so many resources and so much money invested and in not only evaluating from a cognitive ability ability to process but the psychological aspect of it as well what was the term he used football iq and talks so much about the importance of instincts he said you can have all the desired traits that we've talked about but if you don't have a understanding of how to play the game, it's almost it's almost obsolete. And he's talking at the NFL level, right? That was fascinating. The other thing that was, I don't want to say like, it wasn't like a wow moment. The wow part of what he said was how quickly it was coming. And that was talking about how NFL teams now are relying more on GPS max speed numbers than they are the 40 and if we're running the 40, five, six, seven years from now, maybe a decade at the NFL Combine, the only thing that's for is for the eyes. And when I mean the eyes, I mean the audience members, you watching on TV, right? All of us. To me, the GPS 
takes what was once a subjective term in the evaluation process called play speed and makes it quantifiable. And right. now you take what was once subjective, put it put it in an objective bucket, and it's a completely way of looking at it. Completely different way of looking at it. Well, let's circle back on the on the football IQ instincts thing because I, I did have a few conversations with some college personnel and we are in an era now where roster movement is at an all-time high and it's not going to stop anytime soon until some of these rules with the transfer portal are changed. And, and, and a lot of schools, I mean, some different directors and, and general managers, I mean, they want to get the right guys in the building, right? They want them to be there for the right reasons. And that's what you're talking about with the evaluation of a, of a football character. Like, does this guy really love football? Does he want, does he want to be there? And I think people are still trying to navigate and figure that out. Like there is no standardized test. You bring them in on an official visit. I mean, you're, you're selling your program the entire time. I mean, how much, how much evaluating of the character are you really doing? And I think with the, accelerated recruiting process again i mean over 80 percent of the top 247 committed right now what is it 45 plus power five programs with with 15 plus commitments i mean there isn't much time to to figure out an individual and i think the schools that can do that are going to have an advantage right because you can wire those guys the right way you know what you're getting. They're not looking to bounce as soon as this the first sign of adversity. So I thought that was interesting, and you know, different guys just hearing their opinions on, on what you can do, what you can ask, what you're looking for. Here's something I found interesting that Jim said. He brought up he brought up Alabama, and he said that Alabama has kind of gotten away from Alabama, and he thinks that's that's hurt them. Because it, it used to be back in the day that they would they would harvest their their own state, which is a deep state of talent. And those guys would go through the same adversity as anybody else. But the player out of state versus the player in state, it means more to play for the Crimson Tide or to play for Auburn if you're from the state of Alabama. It it's not a shock. LSU is having a ton of success with players from the state of Louisiana via the transfer portal. Everyone's dream in the state of Louisiana, if you were born and raised there, is to put on the purple and gold if you had ever had a chance. That's it. So those, those state schools, especially like in that footprint, I think that was fascinating, especially when you when you come to wire, like, hey, when push comes to shove, this gets really hard and expectations meet reality or reality fails to meet expectations. Are you going to stay loyal to that program or are you going to hit the portal that first chance? And we've talked about the quick evaporation of regional recruiting. I think it's still important. I And, and listen, like, you look at Auburn this year and why I'm so excited about them, it's because of the work they've done in Alabama. They've done a they've done a tremendous job there. And you know, I, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I think that's I think that's really important. We're we're going to this system in college football and conference realignment where it's going to be three power conferences, really four at the end of the day. But I think it's important to keep in perspective how important regional recruiting can be to your program. Quick follow-up to what you said regarding Jim Nagy in Alabama. I wonder if he'll be saying that once he learns about Keon Keeley, Caleb Downs, Caden Proctor, Justice Haynes, because as we alluded to on the previous podcast, those are kind of pros, pros. I get it. I get it. I get it. And I think his point probably would have been more towards 
maybe Caden Proctor than it would have been the other three that were within the region, you know. Now, Caden Proctor, number one tackle in the country, that, that's that's a given. But I understand. I understand what he's saying. What about Alonzo Highsmith? I think we need to talk about yeah, his. Yeah, for those of you who don't know Alonzo Highsmith, Alonzo Highsmith is the general manager. I think that title is a little bit – I think there's more to it. Um, but he's the general manager at the University of Miami, played at the University of Miami, originally from Canada, I believe. Um Working for Mario Cristobal, spent 24 years in the NFL as a scout. Green Bay Packers, Seattle Seahawks. I could listen to him talk all day. He was definitely, in terms of wisdom in that format, he was the wisest speaker I think I've ever listened to. You talk about a guy that has such a comfort in his relationship with the game. It was... It's sometimes it's incredibly just neat to share the stage with people that are so much more smarter than you, experienced than you, and just have a I mean from 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 the way even from the way he saw the game to his humility to the way he was able to convey it, everything about being around him this weekend, and then you meet him, just what a tremendous human being. It takes about 10 seconds after meeting him to know how special of a person he is. So it, he was, um, yeah, he was pretty awesome. Shared his thoughts on the running back position. The best running backs come from the SEC. Why? In the SEC, there ain't no big open lanes for you. You got to fight for yardage, hit the hole with burst, have vision. That was certainly notable to me. And the other thing he brought up with the running back position is compared him to MLB hitters, right? You don't just all of a sudden start hitting home runs. The guys that hit home runs were hitting them when they were 8 years old, when they were 10 years old, when they were 12 years old, when they were 14 years old. And I, he was kind of referring that back to scouting of the running back position. The guys that made people miss in the youth parks – and ran for over 100 yards a game and scored touchdowns, usually are the better running backs later on when we're talking college, making it to the NFL. And I think the key factors for him were quick feet and, and just feel for the position. Quick feet, balance, body control, ability to break tackles consistently. The, the one that stood out to me that he said was vision. And he talked about Gail Sayers and Barry Sanders and their ability to manipulate defenders with their eyes. I mean, you talk about a game of like 3D chess. And then from an evaluation standpoint, being able to evaluate that is a very difficult task. And then you think about it a little bit more and it's like, how many people actually really have that ability, right? So <laughs> when, when you do see that, it should really stick out like a sore thumb. And the guy that he was so high on as of recently, he named two names, I think, of guys that have come out in the last five, six, seven years. And two guys in the SEC, it was Nick Chubb, who he loved, and Derrick Henry, right, who I thought were two really good examples. And he also talked about stories blocking for Emmett Smith, and he, he never felt like he had to do anything because of Emmett Smith's ability to open up running lanes with his eyes and create his own yardage. We've talked about that. We've talked about, I opened up that line of questioning with Quinshawn Junkins, right? And overvaluing a negative. And there's a lot of different takes on that, but uh, long story short, Quinshawn Junkins, we had as a Navy seven overall. So a, a mid to high three star. And he was 11, four, four in the hundred meter. And we had just had this long conversation with James Blanchard about Texas tech and their, and the requisites when it came to when it came to track and field and how they viewed prospects overall at different positions and Quinchon Junkins was a, a a fascinating one um, and it's funny you talk to different people around that in, in college everybody seems like they had a different take on them you know um, 
I'm trying to think anything else, Drew. Um, oh, it's funny because uh, another three star from the 2023 cycle that someone brought up to me. We were just talking in the hallway. Was uh, was Mason Taylor, and they said uh, they were sent Mason Taylor's film, and they just didn't they didn't see it. So we are not the only ones and. I've added that individual to the list of people that have told me the same things. And I'm talking about the tight end at LSU who Brian Kelly has raved about son of Jason Taylor. I just, I thought that was a interesting nugget. Um, a I lot got of rules for you. Okay. And um, before we get into the rule stuff, I thought Alonzo did a really good job of, of breaking down the receiver position. He, he talked about two traits. He talked about play strength, which is evident. Right, a lot of these things we've heard before, but it's hearing them in a different way that maybe makes Opens you a little eyes. bit more, yeah, susceptible to, to to understanding. And then he talked about play strength, but he talked about yards after catch, and knowing the difference between a receiver with production with yards after catch and maybe an explosive receiver that doesn't have much yards after catch, and how they operate. And it's funny, I tweeted about it earlier today, but the guy that was we haven't really talked about a lot, just in general, but Jeremiah. McClellan from Christian Brothers in St. Louis committed to Ohio State over the weekend. I can't remember the last time Ohio State, Brian Hartline, took somebody like him. He's like 5'11 and change. He's 190 pounds. He's built like a running back. But I, I'm, I'm talking about him because I instantly thought of what we talked about this weekend. Here's this guy just in terms of run after catch ability is exceptional. Very natural with the ball in his hands. He's sudden. He can break tackles. He's got all these attributes of what we just talked about, what we want to see in a running back. And I thought that was something that was pretty interesting when you start to think about Ohio State and guys like Mylon Graham that can do a little bit of everything, guys like Jeremiah Smith. And then you got this guy like, hey, I could see Brian Hartline using him out of the backfield. I could see wild, wildcat packages. I could see him out of the slot. Like so many different things that you could do with him. So. That one had me thinking a little bit differently, honestly, just in terms of, yeah, it seems so simple. And when you really think about it, it's like, yeah, that's not really something I've really put that much consideration in when I've evaluated receiver. It's always something you, you jot down in your notes and say, hey, plus, plus RAC or, or, or plus YAC. But I think it's probably something I'm, I'm going to be examining a little bit closer from here on out. I am as well. Yeah, because you, you normally watch and you're like, all right, yeah, like he can run after the catch, but is it he's just pulling away or is it he has shed three tackles, juke someone, and, you know, fought for a first down? I think it's a lot different. I think that's what Alonzo was trying to explain in terms of competitive temperament, you know, core strength, what they're able to do, what they can offer. Because when I, I think when you try to – sort the wide receivers board it gets it gets hard right like what are your separating factors and i I did find that fascinating as well now Coop, what i was going to bring up um one rule change i don't is i don't know if this is for sure in effect uh but had a few few people bring up the fact that the ncaa is only allowed going during the spring evaluation period schools are only allowed to visit a high school one time as it stands right now and what has been the case since you were running recruiting departments during that spring evaluation period in May, you would get a quote unquote academic visit and a, what a athletic evaluation evaluation. So basically you could, you, you can visit a school twice in that stretch and not every state's playing spring football, but some are, you could time it up where you see a practice and then you're at a spring game. Um, and what I heard from some different people is you think regional recruiting is, is shot now. <laughs> Just wait. No longer can you send an area recruiter down to South Florida or into Texas or into New Orleans. You can't send your area recruiter. You have to send the position coach for the kid you're looking after, right? You got 15 offensive tackle targets in the country you bet that offensive line coach is going to want to see all 15 of them. So what did you, 
you and I haven't talked about this, so I'm genuinely curious. What was the impetus behind the move for the NCAA? I I don't know. I like well, it doesn't make sense to me. Like an ex girlfriend just trying to get somebody's attention right now with everything they do. Like, I don't get it. Anyway, that is that hurts, right? From like a ground game being able, like you're only as good as your information at the end of the day. We keep talking about that, not only from an athletic standpoint, but from a character standpoint as well. That's where a lot of those conversations happen. Drew, the other one that really we didn't highlight going into the weekend, but coming out of the weekend is you talk to a lot of these guys running these departments. I don't think they lose sleep about, but the one thing that they wish there was a little bit more patience with is they wish they had the entire fall to be a little bit more prudent in the evaluation process to nail down a couple guys. We, we talked about the senior tape just taking a backseat in the new age college football. And I, you know, you and I have talked about teams out there having opportunities to take advantage because the power players at the top now more than ever, the majority of their classes are done in August. That leaves a pod of players across the country that have been under-evaluated. And you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I think the only thing that that's going to do is just continue to add more activity to the transfer portal year over year. Yeah, the senior valuations aspect was certainly a hot topic um, because it's de- it's a developmental game, right? And I think you could throw out some some big some big schools out there, like big high schools, like a St. Thomas Aquinas, right? A Bishop Gorman, you know, sometimes those kids have to wait to to get in their role. Derek Meadows, for example, the class of 2025 wide receiver that we rolled the dice on. I mean, he didn't he didn't play as a sophomore. And now someone's gonna take him based off what he did in 12 games. 12 games as a junior, instead of a 24 game sample size. And there's always going to be late bloomers. You talk about some of these positions, offensive tackle, tight end, defensive line. Like guys are going to get bigger. Um, and I think the schools that are saving five, six, seven spots to grab someone that fits and checks the boxes and, and has the, the length and the measurements, it's – those are the ones that are, are going to hit. And I think some of these prospects that are taken as sophomores and, and juniors, where they, what was the term that was used? They, they feel like they've made it, they mail it in, then they show up on campus and they're not ready for that life in the SEC or, or the Big Ten. Those are the guys that are going to be in the portal. Um, but no one really had an answer on how to slow slow the process down. I asked. I mean, it was the last question I asked. I said, you know, the the conversations that you have with your head coach, I mean, are you trying to convince them to holster three, four scholarships a year and say, hey, let's just let's kind of lay in the weeds here, right? We got a couple names that we kind of want to see a little bit more from. I mean, Troy Fatanu was a late offered take for us. Now, was he offered by that point? Yes. You and I haven't really talked about this, but there's different tier systems to there's a big difference between an offer and take, offer a hold, offer and hold, and an offer of if must. Everybody out there in the personnel community knows that. They're all not created equally. Right. And how you approach whether or not you're going to take a player is going to be dependent on what you see throughout the evaluation process. Troy Fatano, if you don't know who that is, starting offensive lineman at, at Washington. We're back and forth. It was Washington, USC. We liked him, but we didn't know if we loved him. One of the first games of his season at Liberty in Nevada, he goes up against Nolan Smith at IMG, and I knew that was going to be – we were going to come away from that game and we were going to make our decision. And he came out and held his own. Not only that, I thought he played exceptionally well. rest is history. 
that was it. But we had the luxury of the senior tape to make that decision, an informed decision. And if we didn't have that, we might have made a mistake on somebody earlier in the process because we felt like our clock was sped up. And that's just a microcosm of what teams are feeling across college football now is that they have to make these decisions on building a roster with only a couple of pieces of the puzzle. So you want to know why getting kids to campus is important, watching them work out, watching them move. We talked about Florida State having those camps in late July. That might be the only time you get to do that. What else you got? That's it, man. I mean, I feel, you know, obviously passionate about it. That's what I got. I'm I'm encouraged. Like some people might say, oh, it's slow. And, you know, we're talking about James Blanchard at Texas Tech. I give a lot of props to Joey McGuire, man. It wasn't like there was somebody else out there doing what he's doing right now in Texas Tech. And he's doing that as a first-year head coach. He's the one paving the way. Ultimately, at the end of the day, if we come back 10 years from now and this thing's flipped on its head and there's 20 James Blanchards out there, it's going to be because of Joey McGuire. So it's a copycat league. All it takes is one. I and keep a my lot eyes of people, on those guys. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people are uh, pulling for him. All right, I'll give you one final take. My good friend said this to me as we were standing on Broadway. He goes, I... I keep seeing all these country music stars opening bars and it's like, do they really need more bars? And then you look around and it's like, wow, they actually do need more bars. I mean, you're talking, I know we were there on the, on the weekend, but like a 25 minute wait to get into some of these places. And then they're packed to the brim. I don't know. How, I don't know how you're living there now, man. I, that was, <laughs> I'm married, dude. You see the hardware. I'm not out on Broadway all the time. I'm in and out. I pack my lunch. I got my peanut butter and jelly. I got my banana. I come in with my, you know, my workman's attitude. I'm not out on Broadway, man. Those days are behind me. <laughs> Happy to say it. Just a wild place. A wild, it is I mean, a wild place. It's a wild place. I'm going to stick to, you know, like the formula for me, it's going to be a couple Preds games, maybe a couple nights out a year, but. Look at me, man. I got the dad bod going on. I'm at, like, you know, I'm 31. Those years are behind me. They're gone. Tootsies, I don't know what that is. Aldeans, Kid Rock, I don't know what that is. I've never been there. <laughs> All right, Drew, you ready to get out of here? Um, yeah, let's get it out of here. All right, guys, we appreciate you listening to the 24-7 Sports Football Recruiting Podcast. As always, make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcast, Spotify, Apple included. Also, make sure to leave a review as well and a five-star rating if you feel like that's the right thing to do. Also, no mailbag this week. We're going to punt on that one. We'll bring it back next week. So for producer Lance Glenn, director of scouting Andrew Ivins, I'm Cooper Patagna. See you tomorrow.